believe that you came to see Jesus, and I hope I can facilitate that a little bit. I hope that I can help to take something off of you today. Too much times we're coming to church to get stuff put on us. So we leave with more burdens than we had when we got there. If you leave more discouraged when you leave, if you leave more discouraged than when you got there, something was wrong with that message. I don't know how to define the gospel real well. It's good news. Um, it's peace. It's righteousness. It's love. I just know what it ain't. It ain't ever bad news. So if you come in here bad news, you didn't hear the gospel. You come to church today to hear the good news, to hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And so that's what we want to try to do. I want to get started this morning on a message I would title A Change of the Law. And it really is not, it's kind of an all-encompassing title over what we've talked about the last two nights. Let me give you the real abbreviated version of what you might have missed on Friday night and Saturday night leading into this sermon. We've done two messages on the Ark of the Covenant. We started on Friday night with a message we titled out with the old and with the new. The idea that, that God was transferring the world from an understanding of an old covenant mentality into a new covenant mentality and that we are not living in both. I think that's a mistake when people think we're living in some sort of crossover. That we're under the old covenant but we're also sort of under the new covenant. The old is faded away and when that temple came down nearly 2,000 years ago, there was nothing left in the physical realm that represented the old covenant. No sacrifices, no priesthoods, no incense burning, no bells ringing on the corner of the garments. All the natural trappings of the old covenant vanished. Which means that what we're left with is the new covenant which is invisible in that it is not tangible like this pulpit, but invisible like the Holy Spirit. And so we are followers of a new covenant, which is inaugurated by Jesus Christ. So we talked about leaving the old and jumping into the new, not living in the past, not living in yesterday, realizing that our today helps shape our tomorrow, our yesterday helps shape our today, but we can't live back there. And so we gotta let go and that God is moving us forward into the new things of his Holy Spirit. And then last night we talked about the tomb becomes a womb because really the Ark of the Covenant, the word Ark is from a Hebrew word for coffin. And our translators didn't call it the coffin of the covenant. They called it the Ark of the Covenant because I think the coffin of the covenant sounded a little too dark, which actually it is dark. Because the area that the Ark of the Covenant sets behind the veil, remember we've been using this as our sort of fake holy of holies all week, behind the veil. That's the darkest place in the temple. There's no lamps, there's no windows, and there's no doors. And what lives in there? The Ark of the Covenant or the Coffin of the Covenant. Because coffins live in the dark. And so last night we took you to the Coffin of the Covenant and we showed you that at the resurrection, the stone rolled away. Stones were representations of the law to Hebrew people. The stone rolled away from the grave and there were two angels sitting inside of Jesus' empty tomb, just like the two cherubims on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And Jesus is standing outside of his tomb in a garden, leading us into a brand new world of revelation. And so whatever goes into a tomb gets birthed in Christ and it becomes his womb. He brings forth something new. So we ended last night by saying whatever you put in Jesus, whatever you put in Jesus meets him at his death so that it can come out in his resurrection. So put your heartache and your turmoil and your shame and your guilt and your fear into Jesus and let him bury it in that tomb. And what happens is he, he, he births something brand new in us. And how many of you realize that birth isn't something that happens overnight? 
there's a gestation period. Some of you are pregnant right now spiritually. I know this, I'm just using a term that we can understand, but you're pregnant right now spiritually with what you will become. You're not there yet, right? There's wisdom growing in you. There's an awareness growing in you. There's revelation growing in you. You don't get it all overnight. And part of the reasons why people are confused in the church and discouraged is because we think everybody will be birthing that stuff at the same time. And so we get a revelation of God's love. We get frustrated because everybody doesn't have it yet. We get a revelation that people are forgiven and we're mad because people think they're guilty. And we try to shove people along. It's like trying to birth a baby at six months instead of waiting to nine. And a lot of times we do that with our salvation experiences in the church. We bring people forward and we say, accept Jesus as your Savior. And they say a prayer and it's all kind of moving kind of fast. And they repeat the prayer and they accept Jesus. And we, we prematurely birth them into Christianity. And they're not even, they aren't even ready to lay anything down yet. I mean, we could have gave them a couple of weeks of hearing the word, but we got to ram them up here and get a commitment out of them so we can check a box that we saw someone saved. And in reality, we just confuse somebody into repeating a prayer after me. Right. Say this, if you want to find Jesus or you don't want to burn in hell. And so they say it and then they're confused because they don't know what just happened to them. And it's because we're shoving babies out of the womb before they're ready to be born. Right. Just let the gestation period happen. So there's a bunch of stuff happening in you right now. But it can't be birthed where you don't lay down that death. You can't get to a resurrection without a death. So when we talk Ark of the Covenant, Coffin of the Covenant, it's important to see what's in it because what's in it means what's coming out. As Abe introduced me today, he, he, he brought up the main most salient point of last night, which was that the Ten Commandments went into the Ark and what goes in comes out new, right? So what went into the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments. What comes out Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And so what comes out is that you realize that the law was never meant to make you righteous. That needs to die. That idea that I've got to jump high for God to bless me, that needs to die. That idea that I've got to do good things so God can do good things to me, that's got to die. That's in the ark. But that doesn't mean you're lawless. You're not lawless people. How many of you realize you're governed by the Holy Spirit? If you're not actively listening to the Holy Spirit in your decision-making process, you're living lawless. You're trying to be a cowboy in the presence of God. You're trying to do whatever it is you think you need to do. You're a maverick doing whatever it is you think you need to do. And I want to warn you because wherever you feel as if lawlessness is the greatest expression of the Spirit, you will pick up other vices to help crutch you along. Because some of us used good works to define us. And then we laid our good works down because we got free and we picked up addictions in their place. And we don't feel bad about it because we're liber- we have liberty. But we've picked up addictions in their place to prop us, to help us, keep us from being anxious, keep us from being depressed, keep us from being scared. And where we used to go into our prayer closets or we'd read a few chapters or we'd go into the presence of the Lord, we're so free from religion now, we don't need any of that stuff. So instead, it can very quickly become entertainment or alcohol or drugs or sex or self or trips or money or work. All because we've picked them up in in the guise of liberty, they become crutches because we've laid things down, haven't let a resurrection of reality happen in our spirit. I cast that out today as a warning, as a prophetic warning by the Holy Spirit saying, you are not a lawless people. You are governed by the life of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in you. So be careful what you give your allegiance to knowing that you're a disciple of Christ. So what goes into the ark comes out brand new. And so now... 
as Abe said so well earlier, he's not lawless. He's under a law of love where he's supposed to love his neighbor, but not just the people he likes. He's supposed to love his enemy. He's supposed to love the people that are wrong to him and bad to him and cross him and cheat him. It doesn't mean he's got to lay down, get ran over by people, but it does mean that he loves the unlovable, and that's actually what we do. And you, and you go, well, what happens if you break that law? Will you go to hell? Listen, I don't, tell pe- I don't speak into things I cannot see. All right? I cannot see heaven and hell. I can see your hell. The one you create by not loving your neighbor. So what happens when you break the law of loving your neighbor? You'll create some hell and you've got to live with it. So if you live in daily with hell, it's probably because there's some issues in how we treat our neighbor. And that ought to be where we're going back to Christ every day going, okay, this, that old me has died in the ark. I need to see some gestation. I need to see some pregnancy of the Holy Spirit. That's okay. And letting that come out in us, even slowly letting that come out in us. Don't panic. Don't rush it. Don't push it. Don't prematurely birth it. But let the Holy Spirit do as a father. I'm seeing you generate this love in my heart. Show me where I got to lay some things down. Show me where I got to pick some things up, right? All right, that prepares you for today because there are three items in the Ark of the Covenant. I want to read beginning in Hebrews chapter 9. And this is a verse that we read for you the other night, but I want to read the third and the fourth verse of Hebrews 9. This is a rereading of a Friday night text because I want to establish what's inside the Ark. Behind the second veil in the Holy of Holies, the part of the tabernacle called the holiest of all, verse 4, there's a golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant, or the old Hebrew word would have been the coffin of the covenant sets back there. Remember, that's a box overlaid on all sides with gold. Exodus 25 tells you on the inside it's also gold. Exodus 25 tells you that there's staves, staves that go through it so that you could carry it because the ark was portable because the presence of God was always on the move. The Holy Spirit doesn't sit in one spot. He's always on the move. He's always growing. He's always expanding. He's always turning. Exodus 25 tells you that there's cherubims over it. These inside of that are three items. The golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded and the tablets of the covenant. And last night we talked about the tablets of the covenant. That's also called the 10 commandments, that which is written and engraved on stone. And the 10 commandments have been placed inside the ark of the covenant. Why? Cause that's how we open today is to say, because something about that law needed to die so that something new could come out. What needed to die? The idea that you could be righteous by that law. The idea that that law governed, decided whether or not you're saved or lost, that that law decided whether or not God blessed you or cursed you that needs to die. Because Christ has come, Christ is the one sitting on top of that box now. Christ has been enthroned at the mercy seat. So when you come to Christ, what's under his feet is law that defines your righteousness. Law doesn't define your righteousness. Christ defines your righteousness. So what comes out of him now is the new law, and it's the law of love. And you haven't gotten rid of law, you've just had it transformed in Christ so where it no longer is your righteousness. Now that leads us to two more items in the ark because according to this text, there were three things in the ark and I'm working them backwards. And I'm doing that for a reason. The law was the one we needed the most extensive knowledge of, I think. And I think, I I know from conversations with your pastor, there's been a lot of work on transferring you out of a mentality of law for your righteousness into righteousness by faith in Christ. So we didn't have to do quite as much on that. But I want to work those last two because I don't think they get enough attention when we talk about what's inside the ark. And that's Aaron's rod that budded, and that's the pot full of manna. And to help you with Aaron's rod that budded, I want to start by telling you a little story. All right? Now, we are going to read a little more text today than is common for a Sunday morning. I don't expect you to memorize it all. If you're a note taker, you can jot it down, read it when you get home. 
Some of it we'll just read through because I want you to see that it's actually in the Bible. I think that's important. Sometimes we hear preachers tell stories and we go, well, I don't know about that. And the way some preachers tell stories, we ought to go, well, I don't know about that. So sometimes it's good to at least know where the text is so you can read it and go, okay, he was right. Or mm, I don't know. I still don't know about that based on that reading. And that's fine. That's the way it ought to be because you have a Bible and you can study. So we'll put the verses up. We might not work real hard at them. Okay. But I want to start by telling you a story in the old Testament. There was a moment when a man named Korah led a rebellion against the leadership of Israel. And Korah began to argue that Aaron shouldn't be the only one who gets to hear from God. Aaron was the high priest of Israel. And Aaron was the only one who was a representation of the people to God. And Moses would hear from God, speak to Aaron, and Aaron would offer up all the sacrifices. And it was the top hierarchical position in all of Israel. There was this sort of spiritual hierarchy in Israel. And Korah goes, man, that ain't fair that Aaron's the only one who gets to hear from God. And there was a fallout and a rebellion in the book of Numbers. In about the 16th chapter, a bunch of people die because they rebel against the authority system of God. So Aaron and Moses go to God and they say, what do you want us to do about this? And I actually think they go to God because I, I got a feeling Moses goes to God and goes, you know, they make a good point. And the reason I think that that's probably the case is whenever Moses was given the law of God, God told Moses, I want to make a nation of priests out of Israel. A nation of priests. I want everyone to have access. And Moses came down the mountain and told Israel, hey, guess what? I talked to God. We cut a covenant. He wants to make you a nation of priests. And the Bible says Israel looked at Moses and said, we're scared of God. You talk to him. And Moses goes back up the mountain and God goes, all right. That's the way they want it. That's the way it'll be. And so what was created only a few chapters earlier was a hierarchical system in which only one person got to hear from God or two people, three people got to hear from God and everybody else just did what they were told. How many of you know that's how most of us were raised in a church? Guess where we borrowed that? Sinai. That's an old covenant mentality. This is where only one guy gets to hear from God. Top dog in the church gets to hear from God. Everybody else, it kind of filters down, maybe level two. What you're really hoping to do is you get to jump levels. You know, like you can move up the hierarchy enough. You get to jump up some levels, get a little more authority, get a little more control, get a little more power. And what happens, because that so closely models the way the systems of the world work, is that people get drunk with power, and they get drunk with authority, and they begin to abuse people. And so a lot of us come up in environments in which we were spiritually abused. And actually, a lot of times we were spiritually abused with Bible. How many of you realize that it's, it's, you, you can fence in a lot of people in the church if you'll just use a bunch of scriptures out of context any way you want to and skip the ones you don't understand? Yeah. Like we get raised with black holes in our text. Like we'll read the Bible and there's a couple verses there we don't know how to interpret. We just skip them. Yeah. Move on to the ones we know that's going to keep people bound up. This is also why some of us need some counseling. We need to sit down and get a little therapy. And I know we think, well, Jesus will heal all that stuff. He will, but he won't pull anything out of the dark you don't pull out there for him. Because he, he, he is not going to mentally and emotionally rape you. So if you don't want to let God know what your problems are, he's not going to just force them. 
But if you'll let him know what they are and you'll pull them out in the light, Jesus can heal them. But you've got to get them out in the light. Sometimes you've got to talk to somebody to get them out in the light. That's why we confess our faults one to another so that we may be healed, James said. We confess to each other because you might bring something out of me I won't bring out of me because I won't be honest with me. But maybe your questions will make me be honest with me. And so if I bring those things out in the light, the Holy Spirit can heal them. And sometimes we're even messing this up because we think that we can heal people by throwing a bunch of scriptures at them. And I got news for people. A lot of us, were P- we got a little PTSD on getting Bible thrown at us. Getting Bible thrown at us is what put us in bondage. You think throwing more Bible at us is going to set us free? So you're going to throw 12 more verses at me and that's going to liberate me? No, the reality is I need a revelation of God's love and the finished work, not four more scriptures. And so it's about going and having an encounter with the resurrected Christ, having this revolutionize who I am. And so what happens is Moses and Aaron go to God and go, Lord, what do you want to do? They got a point. Should it just be Aaron? Is he the one that gets to hear from you? Now let me read for you the story from Numbers chapter 17, verse 1. And we'll just read right through it. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, Speak to the children of Israel and get from them a rod from every father's house, all their leaders according to their father's houses, 12 rods, because there's one family at the head of every one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Think of it as almost, uh, this is not, this is, inter, this is an interpolation, this is not historically accurate, but think of them as 12 fam, uh, crime families. Who's the head of the family, okay? They're not crime families, but we get that mentality. We can get that narrative idea. Who's the head of the family? The head of the family brings his, his governing rod. The rod was a sign of authority. Brings his governing rod. Write every man's name on his rod. So we're going to have 12 of them because there's 12 tribes of Israel. You shall write Aaron's name on the rod of Levi. That's because the priestly tribe is the tribe of Levi. So Aaron's the head of the tribe of Levi. And there shall be one rod for the head of each father's house, and you shall place them in the tabernacle of meeting before the testimony. The testimony is another word for the Ark of the Covenant. So take all 12 of them, slide them behind the curtain, throw them up against the Ark of the Covenant, and leave them. And write, and, and leave them where I meet with you, because God always talked to Moses from the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 5. And it shall be that the rod of the man that I choose will blossom. Thus I will rid myself of the complaints of the children of Israel, which they make against you. Quite simply, I'll pick who gets to listen by resurrecting from the dead the rod. Because a rod, a a stick that's dead, doesn't bloom. So God goes, whichever one's bloomed out, that's the one that I'll choose. Verse 6. So Moses spoke to the children of Israel, to every one of the heads, every one of the leaders that gave him a rod apiece. Each leader according to their father's house, 12 rods. The rod of Aaron was among their rods. And Moses placed the rods before the Lord in the tabernacle of witness. And of course, that's before the Ark of the Covenant. And it came to pass on the next day that Moses went into the tabernacle of witness. I like to think at sunup because God does his work. He does his resurrections at sunup. The sun rises on a new life. At sunup, he goes into the tabernacle of witness. And behold, the rod of Aaron of the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and had produced blossoms and yielded ripe almonds. And so the... For, for purposes of our study, the end of the story is that Aaron's rod is chosen and God tells him to leave it. He ends up telling him, you leave that next to the Ark of the Covenant as a witness. Somewhere by the time we get to Hebrews 9, somebody's picked the lid up off that Ark and slid that rod that butted inside of the Ark of the Covenant. Because by the time we get to Hebrews 9, we've got a redemption story. Jesus is now seated on the Ark, so whatever went in gets redeemed. So let's start with what went in. What went in was a stick that blossomed into almonds, but you know it's much more than that. 
Because what went in was the idea that one guy gets to hear from God and everybody else just shuts their mouth. What went in was spiritual hierarchy. Top dog, second dog, third dog, 20th dog, puppy dog, junkyard dog, right? Way on down the line. What goes into the ark must die so that something new can come out. This is the design of heaven. And so in, in the economy of Israel, you had a priest over a nation. But God's idea was never to speak to just the pastor, just the evangelist, just the, the church head, just the pope, just somebody at the top of the pyramid, and it sort of filtered down to everybody else because this is an anti-relational relationship hierarchy. There's no relationship in that. There's just come in, sit down, shut up, do what you're told. And it's way easier to corral people if you can get them to believe, come in, sit down, shut up, do as you're told. Because I, this is what we're doing. We're building my vision. We're building my dream. We're building my hope. We need your money, your time, your effort, and your butts in the seats to build up the dream God gave me. And if we can get you to believe that, we can all work together for the same thing. And I'm amazed in the church how we rally people around one guy's vision. How many of you know we ought to be unified? And really what they're saying is how many of you know we ought to do what I think God told me to do? And I just need your help doing it. Until you don't have God telling you to do anything. And I don't think that's new covenant reality. So whatever goes into the ark has to come out brand new, has to come out renewed. Here's what new covenant looks like versus old covenant. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 10 and 11. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'm going to put my laws in their mind and I'm going to write them on their hearts I'll be their God and they'll be my people. So I want to pause right here for a minute. The Ten Commandments went into the ark. They get rene renewed and redeemed as God writing his laws on your heart, not writing his laws on your wall. God puts who he is inside of you and then lives out of you, not who he is outside of you and tells you to jump. And if we're preaching a God that's right here, jump. We're preaching old covenant law. So God puts the law inside of us. We live out of it. But look at the next verse, 11. None of them shall teach his neighbor, none his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Watch this. All shall know me from the least to the great. So God's new covenant design is not, I'll speak to Aaron, and then Aaron will tell you what to do. God's new covenant design is, everybody gets to know me from the lowest end of the totem pole to the highest end of the pyramid. I do not pick one person and then everybody got, has to do what one person says. And if you, if you need proof of this in the life of Jesus, they come to him in, the, in Jesus' day and say, which of us gets to sit at your, uh, at your right hand, your left, and you get in the kingdom? And Jesus goes, this isn't the way this works in the kingdom. You guys are thinking like the world. He goes, the world exercises lordship over you. He goes, but to be great in my kingdom, you got to be the least in my kingdom. He goes, because the way my father does it is he flips the pyramid. He doesn't pick one guy and then the goodness trickles down. He goes to the bottom and then and for, and pushes grace upward. So God always starts in the gutter and works his way up. Which is why the, the quicker you realize you're in the gutter, the quicker you realize you can have some grace. 
The quicker you realize you're a nobody, you lay that in front of him, that part of you can die. Now you're ready to get resurrected. You're not jumping through hoops to get to God. You realize you come in exactly as you are. This is why you've got to be honest with God. Bring your darkness right to the Father and just lay it out in front of him because that's what he's looking for anyway. Remember, he does great creative acts over darkness. The Spirit of God hovers over the face of the deep. Wherever you're at your darkest and your worst and your most chaotic, that's where God can go to work. And that's why the church needs to be filled with dark people. The church needs to be filled with chaotic people whose lives are messed up because if we can bring that in and then let the Holy Spirit hover over it, he'll begin to do a work of recreation. That church has got to be patient because we're going to have pregnancies at different levels in the room. Right? We're going to have people who just barely got anything and they ain't birthed much. And we got people who are popping with revelation, man. They're popping with joy. They're popping with peace. And we're going to be birthing children of revelation and i'm and of course i'm being allegorical of course but we can't force that we let the holy spirit do that so when aaron's rod goes into the ark it's god saying that hierarchical stuff's over with out of that is going to be birthed the reality that every person gets to hear from god equally and you have the presence of the holy spirit let me say this you know my heart's not to condemn so i want to say something that on the surface if you didn't know my heart might sound condemning so please bear with me for just a second all right you need Christian disciplines in your life. You need prayer time. You need study time. You need giving time. You need fellowship time. You need to take communion. You need to be in the body of believers. Not because without it, you're a sinner bound for a devil's hell, but because without it, you create some hell that you shouldn't have to go through. You shouldn't have to go through because God made you to be a part of a body. So you can exist by yourself, but you can't thrive. And, you, and, and so you need the disciplines of what it means to be a believer, not because without them you're not a believer, but because without them you're not the believer you could be. You're not what you were created or designed to be. And so I say all of that for this reason. You don't have a spiritual hierarchy system. You've been liberated from it. But don't, now that you've been liberated from someone else speaking to you, don't liberate yourself so far that you don't even listen to the Holy Spirit. See, we got so tired of being told what to do that a lot of us just quit listening to anything. So we didn't want, we didn't want God to tell us what, or we didn't want pastor to tell us what to do. We didn't want the denomination to tell us what to do. We didn't want the church to tell us what to do. So we ain't going to listen to God telling us what to do. Because if it ain't what I want to do, then it ain't God. And we can get very dangerous very quickly because we start to ignore the gentle sounds of the Holy Spirit that wants to. Because listen, what's went into the ark comes out brand new. So what went in was the spiritual hierarchy a spiritual hierarchy that looked like the world. What comes out is a hierarchy in which the Holy Spirit is your leader and your guide. And you have ear. This is why the Bible says this at the end of the canon. For he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Why does God say that? All seven churches in Revelation, he ends his prophecy with, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. Because not all of us will have ears to hear. Right? right? And you know what's dangerous? Because we all have ears and if we're not using them, what happens? Well, we miss out on what the Holy Spirit is saying. And so, use the ears to hear. Here, here's, here's one more thought. I want you to know who you are. Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. God made us kings and priests to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And amen. There's a little bit of a translation issue right here in the Greek. Because God didn't actually make you a king. Jesus is the king of kings. Okay? You're in a kingdom. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. This word in the Greek is actually God made us a kingdom of priests unto God. 
you and I are a, so guess what? In the end, God gets what he wanted in the beginning. Remember what he wanted back at Sinai? He goes, I want everybody to be a priest. And Israel went, I don't want to be a priest. And God went, all right, you don't want to be a priest. I'll use Moses and Aaron. At the end, he gets his way. Guess what? This is where we live. This isn't 10,000 years in the future. This is us now. This is Christ walking in the midst of his church going, you're a kingdom of priests. And you know why? Because Aaron's rod that budded inside the Ark of the Covenant. I think this is good news. I, I think this is spectacular news, in fact. I think we could stop right now, and we've had such good news that we would be done. But we'd leave that third thing in the Ark, and we can't do that. Because whatever goes in, the die has got to come out resurrected. And I know there's different gestation periods, but we ain't going to leave that baby in there for months and months and months. So let's bring that thing out today. So the third thing that goes into the Ark of the Covenant is a pot full of manna. Let me give you just a bit of context on this. This is a story most of us are even more familiar with than we are Aaron's rod that budded. You remember that when the children of Israel left the land of Egypt and they sojourned across the Red Sea, they very quickly start to run out of water. And when you run out of water, you're 72 hours from dying. That's a biological medical fact. You will not make it much longer than three days without water. And Israel gets into the wilderness a few days journey and they're thirsty and they begin to psychologically lose it because you begin to psychologically lose it when your body begins to dehydrate and they're losing it. And Moses goes to God and goes, okay, we got a problem. People are losing it. They're dehydrated. They're dying and they want to kill me because that's what happens whenever we're at the point of death as we turn, we'll even turn on the people we love to preserve our own lives. And that's what happens in Israel. And so God tells Moses, and this begins a string of events as they make their way through the wilderness in which Moses hits the rod with his, he hits the rock with his rod and water gushes out and all of Israel drinks. At another point, he comes across a stream and it's bitter and he throws a tree into the stream and the waters get sweet. Have you noticed there's always rocks and sticks involved? There's rocks and trees and water involved. Have you noticed there's, there's law that gets struck by a cross that brings the living water? Have you noticed that if the water is bitter, you put the cross in and it gets sweet. So wherever there's bitterness in your life, take it to the cross and let something die. And then something good comes out of it. Man, you can preach this stuff all day long. This is just ready made. So as you walk through the wilderness, here's God doing all this stuff that's prescient of Jesus. It looks like Jesus in, in advance. And so as they make their move through the wilderness, God tells them, when you wake up tomorrow morning, open your tent flap and there's going to be this thing laying on the ground, pick it up and eat it. Now, this is risky because who, who picks something up off the ground and eats it? I mean, could you imagine if God said, you know, when you're walking down the street today, there's going to be this thing laid on the sidewalk, pick it up and eat it. You go, well, that's a real test of faith, God. I don't, I, I, a, I don't know how it got there. B, I don't know what it is. The C, I don't know who's watching. So, you know, but God goes, is this a great test of faith? And he goes, so when you wake up in the morning, open your tent flap, there's a bunch of stuff on the ground, pick it up and eat it. I'm sustaining you. And God goes through all this instruction before they ever even do it. And he goes, you're going to gather it for six days. But on the sixth day, gather twice as much and put it up. Because on the seventh day, the day of rest, there will not be any of it fall. And so the children of Israel begin this journey. And I want to read just a little bit of it from Exodus chapter 16, verse 31. The house of Israel called it manna. Israel named it, by the way. God didn't name it manna. I want to pause right here for just a second. Anybody know what the Hebrew word, what... Manna is a direct translation out of the Hebrew. That's not an English word. That's a Hebrew word. Manna. And it means, it's a question in Hebrew. It means, what is it? 
So when Israel opened the tent flap, they went, manna. Is that quizzical sound in your voice? Manna. What is it? And it stuck. So everyone went, manna, 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 manna. What is it? What is it? What is it? So I always thought that was kind of cool. We always think it was this real heavenly word, like God drops this word manna down. And sometimes God's got a real good sense of humor. And he just goes, listen, you live in a perpetual state of question. That's okay. You got a perpetual state of question with God. That's all right. You can, you can be sustained with perpetually asking God the same question over and over again, by the way. So every time they said manna, they were saying, what is it? It was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. I'll pause right here. I'm just going to give you a freebie, okay? I'm in the weeds a little bit. This is a little too much for Sunday morning, but I'm going to give it to you anyway because I want to. It's white, and it's sweet. When you get to the end of the Torah, right before they get in the promised land, Israel describes what the manna looks like and tastes like, and they describe it as bitter and dark. It's like it's lost its appeal. I want to ask you, did it change? No. What happens is that oftentimes we grow uncomfortable with what God gives us. And so the freshness of manna was lost on them. And I could pre- we could preach a whole sermon on what that might mean, but this is the perception they have initially of manna, and that changes over time. And I, I'm, I'm going to use that in just a second to show you why it needed to go into the ark. Okay? So it's white like corn to see. It tastes like honey. It's sweet. 32. Moses said, this is the thing the Lord's commanded. Fill an omer with it. Here's a word for you to underline if, you're a hard, if you've got a hard copy in your Bible. Fill an omer, O-M-E-R, with it. That's an odd word to us. We don't know what an omer is in the English. We don't use that word, but you, you do. You just don't know it, all right? That's one of those where I'm giving you a hint that you know the word. You just don't know you know the word because it's a word that we have changed over time. Fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. 33. Moses said to Aaron, take a pot, put an omer of manna in it, and there it is again, put an omer of manna in it, lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. And so we want you to be able to see what it was that brought us through the wilderness. But that word omer pops up again. Very specific word. By the way, an omer is a unit of measurement. In our culture, we might say a pint, or a cup, or a gallon, or a quart, or a liter. In Hebrew definition, the word was omer. But how much is it? That's very important. You'll keep it for your generations. 34. And as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony. What's the testimony? Ark of the Covenant. Coffin of the Covenant. Where did he put it? He put it up next to the coffin. What happens over time? Somebody picks the lid up. Picks it up, slides it inside the ark, get to Hebrews 9, it's inside the ark. God does that by design. The children of Israel ate manna 40 years. By the way, there's the reason why it didn't taste as good after 40 years. You eat the same thing for 40 years? Most of us can't eat the same thing four days in a row. You eat 40 years in a row. They came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Here's a really important point. God's daily provision was all the way up to the edge of the promised land because the promised land was supposed to be a place where you planted your own crops and produced your own harvest. And so it is not God's will for you to live every day just desperately waiting on God to do something. That's a temporary provision. God's will for his people is so that you become a producer in whatever way that is. And so the promised land is a land with no manna. So God's not just dropping daily bread. God's given you the ability to perpetually produce bread. That's the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, by the way. They come to the border of the land of Canaan, 36. You ready? 
No, that's good. An omer is one-tenth of an ephah. Big deal, right? Who cares? What's an ephah? Another unit of measurement. I didn't put all that up there to give you Hebrew units of measurement. I put all that up there to give you the one part of that you can recognize. One-tenth. What do we use? What word do we use to describe one-tenth? Ah, there it is. The tithe. So God says, take a tithe of manna and stick it up next to the Ark of the Covenant. And somewhere along the way, somebody lifts that lid and takes the tithe of manna and sticks it inside the Ark of the Covenant. And what goes into the Ark must die so that what comes out is better, right? We've been preaching this for two nights. What goes in must die so that what comes out is better. And I present to you that what goes into the Ark is this temporary provision where you live just desperately day by day, desperately waiting on the man of God to give you the word, desperately waiting on fresh manna from heaven for the day, and instead you have a peace that passes all understanding, a joy unspeakable, full of glory, and the ability to hear from God for yourself, and to reproduce it so you're not just waiting around for next Sunday so you can get a word. But instead, that's died. That part, you're not a manna eater anymore. You're a crop producer. But you also are dead to the obligatory giving of a tithe because the tithe goes into the Ark of the Covenant. But just as whatever goes in gets birthed into something better, you no longer are a tither. You now are a giver. So the tithe goes in and dies in Christ, but it doesn't mean we're not givers. It means we're not obligatory givers. It means now we're resurrected givers. And as you've probably figured out, whatever comes out is way better than what went in. So we're way better at whatever the, the resurrected version is than we were at the version that goes into that space. Let me show you this from a new covenant perspective with this thought before we get there. At the beginning of this chapter that we just read to you from Exodus 16, or not the beginning, but right in front of our text, God tells them that on the sixth day, take twice as much in because the next day is going to be a Sabbath. And so what he is saying is there is a rest from the provision being every day. You and I now have moved away from the daily provision moved into the permanent provision. We know this because in John 6, Jesus says, Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they are dead. Because the bread that you ate was natural bread. It came from God, but I'm the actual bread that comes down from heaven. If any man eats my flesh and drinks my blood, he has my life in him. And if any man eats my flesh and drinks my blood, he shall never be hungry again. He shall never be thirsty again. If you take in Jesus, you don't need manna. In other words, if you take in Jesus, you get the Sabbath day of the wilderness. What was the Sabbath day? No manna. So if you take in Jesus, you receive the Sabbath. Which is why we don't have a Sabbath day observance as Christians. Because if you honored one day, you have Christ. You'd be dishonoring the Christ of the other six days. Christ brings you rest. He becomes your Sabbath. You take all that was old and you place it into the ark and you put Jesus on the throne and what comes out is not a one-day rest but a seven-day rest. What goes in dies, what comes out is better. One-day rest, seven-day rest, you get to pick. Your boss says to you, here's the deal. You get one day off or you get seven days off. Which one do you want? Go quick. You've got to decide right now. You just don't get to think about it. You've got to decide right now. 
So you get, you get one day of rest and six days of working like crazy until you're about dead, or I'll give you seven days of rest and I'll do the work and you and I participate in all the benefits. Which one you want? It's pretty obvious. Jesus becomes the better bet. I want to pause right here. I'm, I'm actually winding down and I want to land strong on this, all right? The reason the tithe existed in the old covenant was not because God needs money. God, by the way, God never needs money. The economy of heaven doesn't have the economy of earth. It's not backed by the dollar, backed by the stock market, backed by the gold of Fort Knox. The economy of heaven does not give you based upon your performance. It gives you based upon your lack of performance. In other words, Paul wrote to the Romans and he said, if it's, if it's works, it's debt. Otherwise, it's grace. So you either get what you get from God because you earned it, or you get what you get from God because you didn't earn it. Which one you want? Because if it's what you earn, you're in trouble. Your check's going to be puny. So you want what you can't earn. So we're not under a covenant of earning. So God, if he's not paying you through natural money, he don't need natural money. A lot of times in the church, we'll say stuff like, hey, come up here and give to God. The reality is you're not giving to God. God doesn't need money. It's not like heaven got richer because you gave 10 bucks. I mean... What you do need is that the church that you're in needs money to do the things it's going to do. And if you don't give, it's probably going to close its doors. So I like to say this to people. You're free from the tithe, but you ought to give to what matters. Because if you don't give to what matters, what matters won't be there anymore. And then you won't have anything to give to at all. So you have to decide what you want. So if you like what you have, you might want to sow into it. Because if you don't sow into it, where's it going to come from? God going to drop magical dollars into the church bank account? Is he just going to drop it in there? And just, he's just going to override the bank. The bank's going to go, how'd that get in there? And God goes, ha, 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 I got a lot of money. I know what I'm doing. I'm going to save my church. He didn't choose to do it that way. And, he didn't, and, and so why then did we tithe under the old covenant? Well, we tithed because we had a priest caste, C-A-S-T-E. We had a priest caste. We had a priest class. And the priest class didn't own property. They didn't own animals. They couldn't farm. They had no income. Do you know how you supplied the priests? The tithe. And the tithe was your harvest, 10% first fruits. Whether it was your animals or your agriculture, you gave the best 10% you had and you gave it into the priesthood so that the priesthood had stuff. Otherwise, they had nothing. So guess what? The tithe was always support what matters or it goes away. If you don't support the priesthood, you don't have a priesthood. You don't have a priesthood, you don't have a tabernacle. You don't have a tabernacle, you don't have an ark. You don't have an ark, you don't have a cloud by day or a fire by night. Good luck. And to make sure you knew you needed it, remember those three days when you had no water? Remember every day when you opened the tent flap and there was no manna? That's what it would be like without the presence of God. And so what they saw was we got to tithe into the priesthood. So what happens if you get rid of the natural priesthood? What happens if there's no caste system? There's no hierarchical class system. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 12 says this, the priesthood being changed of necessity... And here's my title today. There's a change of the law. How many of you believe that the priesthood of heaven changed with Jesus, the great high priest? God doesn't have a natural priesthood anymore, right? He doesn't have Aaron, the priest. He has Jesus, the priest, the great high priest. If you believe that the priesthood has changed, then the law has to change as well. So the priesthood being changed, there is of necessity a change of the law. Did you know that this chapter, this is Hebrews chapter 7. This chapter's the great tithe chapter that everybody preaches in Hebrews 7. Where Abraham tithes into Melchizedek. And by tithing into Melchizedek, he's, he's tithing 
for all of his sons. Everybody after him is tithing into Melchizedek. And what we do is we preach Hebrews 7 and we go, see, if Abraham tithed before the law, you ought to be tithing after the law. And the reason we do that is because we pick and choose the verse we want and we don't follow the the narrative flow of the author who at verse 12 goes, hey, by the way, if the priesthood changed, then the law regarding supporting the priests would change. So if you don't have a natural priest, then you don't have a natural tithe. Because what was the tithe for? By the way, just in case you need proof, in Deuteronomy, God said if you're out in the middle of nowhere and you take in your harvest and you're not close to the tabernacle, take your tithe and buy anything you want and throw a party. That's in the Torah. That's in Deuteronomy. And God said, buy whatever you want. Food, strong drink, throw a party. Because the tithe was for the priests and the priests aren't there. And if the priests aren't there, take what you would have given to God and give it to him through celebration. Man, I never heard that preached one time in my life. And here's why. Because we thought it was dangerous. Listen, I'm landing here. We thought it was dangerous to release people from the tithe as pastors. Because if we release people from the tithe, they're going to stop giving. And if they stop giving, we can't pay for stuff. And we're not wrong. If people, here's, cause here's what I found, because I did this in our church. Release people from the tithe, our offerings went down. Yeah, sure. The Sunday we released people from the tithe, the offerings went down. Right. Which told me that most people were given because they had to, not because they wanted to. So they were, given, they, were, they were clenching their spiritual teeth when they gave. And a lot of people were buying God off. At least that was their mentality. Here, I got to do this. If I don't do, because we, we taught people, if you don't tithe, God will curse you financially and you'll lose your job. I heard, I used to preach that. God curse you financially, lose your job, probably go bankrupt. We go, that's the reason some of you are having financial problems right now because you ain't paying your tithes. Some of you can't pay your rent because you didn't pay your tithes first. If you pay your tithes, then you can pay your rent. And nobody ever brought up that it looked like the billionaires out in the world did pretty good on their yacht without paying tithes into the local Baptist church. You go, how in the world did they figure that out? We go, well, that's of the devil because the devil can promote people and make them rich too. And I got to be honest, I sat in church a couple times and went, well, then, you know, sign me up for some of that for a couple weeks because... <laughs> Because, God, I'm in trouble. I'm just being honest with him. I just drag that out in public. Right? But once I realized I got... So here's what we had to do. You had to teach the church you've been liberated from the tithe, but teach them that what goes into the coffin comes out resurrected. So what went in was necessity. You had to give. What comes out is you get to give because you're being fed. Let me show you how that looks. 2 Corinthians 9. We're going to close right here. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Paul says... He who sows sparingly reaps sparingly. He who sows bountifully reaps bountifully. That's a fact of agriculture. Put two seeds in, get two trees. Put 20 seeds in, get 20 trees. Right? Not put 50 seeds in, get 5,000 trees. Which is how we were taught to give. Come up here and give 50. God's telling me there's a hundredfold blessing in the house tonight. Last night it was 50-fold blessing. It usually just has to do with how much debt there is. Or we open some obscure passage back here in the Bible and go, Jeremiah 29, 24. I'm saying, Holy Ghost says if you'll give $2,924, you'll get what this verse says right here, right now. 
Paul combats and goes here. Let's start right here. Sow a little bit, get a little bit, sow bountifully. Give. He's talking ag. In ag, if you put a little in, you get a little out, you put a lot in, you put a lot out. He'll keep that in mind when you put into things that matter. If they matter a little bit, give a little bit. If they matter a lot, give a lot. If you're being blessed big time, give big time. If you're not being blessed much at all, don't bother. Because you need to figure out what matters to you, and that's how you give accordingly, because that's resurrected giving. And then it looks like this, verse 7. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Don't give grudgingly. Don't give of necessity, because God loves a cheerful giver. So if you're tithing out of necessity... You're not resurrected giving. You're old covenant giving. That's necessity. Now, God wants cheerfulness, and how are we going to be cheerful in it? When we give out of where we're blessed. I love to give out of where I'm blessed. And I love to give to what blesses me. It brings me joy. We get cheerful when we get to bless what blesses us. Now, figure out what blesses you and bless the fire out of it. I mean it. Why? Because if you sow bountifully, you get bounty. It's not I'm buying God off. It's I found the source of my blessing. I sow into it because it continues to look like this. Verse eight, God then is able to make all grace abound towards you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. God didn't say, I'm going to give you an abundance. so You can go buy a yacht. I'm going to give you an abundance for every good work. What I want to do is I want to bless cheerful givers who give into the things that bless them because in that, I continue to bless them so they can perpetually continue to give into the things that bless because here's the unspoken truth. If it blesses you, odds are it blesses 10 other people. Which is why if your local church matters to you, you bless your local church because there's more than just you going there. This is also why you're missed when you're not here. It's not because we have an attendance board and we, ooh, church is growing. It's because you matter. And if you matter to one, you probably matter to ten. And we need to see your face because it blesses our hearts. Because you might offer something I don't have. And you might offer something that he doesn't have and she doesn't have. And together we're better than by ourselves. So we have an abundance of every good work. Nine, it's written, he dispersed abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. This is what God does with the words. So now he may, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. So resurrected giving actually says that as we give into the things that matter, we actually see the fruit of God ripen in our lives because we're feeding the things that feed us. Perpetual cycle. We're feeding the things that feed us. Last verse today. While you're enriched in everything, for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. So my enrichment has nothing to do with my wallet. My enrichment has to do with all the liberality that comes with knowing I'm a son. Listen, you got a place right here that teaches you your sons and daughters. If you believe in it, you ought to give to it. And I'm going to tell you something else, and you just go home and pray about this, all right? Don't judge me for it. I think if you really believe in it, you're going to beat, you're going to beat the tithe. Like back when you were tithing and you had a percentage, I think what will happen is we'll stop telling God how much is enough and we'll start just believing that what we give into is worth giving into. And we'll, you'll find yourself giving without your calculator anymore. Because right. I think sometimes we get so locked into one number that we give it at church and then we don't go give it anywhere else. I've heard Christians say, I think this is why we're bad tippers. 
By the way, Christians are terrible. You go into any, any restaurant on Sunday afternoon and every server will tell you, my worst day of the week is Sunday afternoon. Christians are irritable, they're mad, and they're tight. You know why they're irritable, mad, and tight? They just went to church, they got bored to death, they got beat up, and they got their money stolen from them. So they get out here to eat, and they're in a bad mood, and they're going to take it out on somebody. And I ain't got time to tip this girl 20% because she didn't do everything I wanted her to do. I just gave God 10. By God, that's 30% in one afternoon. All I had was a hamburger and french fries. God got 10 of it. She gets 20. She's going to do a lot better for me to get that. And I think we show our hand that we're having trouble with the first law. The, the Ten Commandments are in there loving our neighbor when we're so beat up. So I've, I, I, And I know what it is. I know that so much of us have given out of necessity that we can't give out of liberality. And if we were given out of our heart, we might... You were just taught that if you give out of your heart, He actually increases your fruits of righteousness and liberality. You actually give more as you start giving out of your heart. Not less. You give more. And you don't stop at the door. We could become better. We could be the ones they want to come into the restaurant. They go, here come the believers. Watch these people give. Watch these people give. Even if we're not good servers... Especially if we're not good servers. Never seen anything like them. They're grace people. And you go, well, that won't make them better. Try it. Watch what happens when you liberally give people grace. I've went too long today. I gave you a lot of material. Guys, I've had fun for three services. Worked this over with the Ark of the Covenant. Talked about its physicality. Talked about what it meant to Israel. Talked about what it meant as a coffin. And then talked about the items that were inside of it. I want to say that I should have said this up front every night. I do not claim to have some corner on the market on understanding the Ark of the Covenant. You're going to hear 20,000 different interpretations of what all of these things mean. I just want you to think. All right? At the end of the day, if you think and you go, I don't know about that, that Paul White said about that, that's fine. That's good. I can live with that. Uh, what, you, you don't have to go attack me on social media and you know, call me a pariah and a heretic. and uh, It's unorthodox. You, you can if you want to. You won't be the first. But I, I ask that you just kick it over a little bit in your spirit and say, what's the Holy Spirit saying? Because at the end of the day, I am no more your voice of truth than, than Aaron was, than, than you need a new voice of truth in the church today. It's, it can't become me. It can't become Pastor Jamie. It can't become Tabernacle of Hope. We're just conduits for what we think the Holy Spirit is saying, and you filter it because you have the Holy Spirit in you. All right? And so you take it or you leave it. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Sometimes you need to close your ears to some stuff that's out there. I mean, stop amen and all the garbage that comes down a pipe. I got up this morning, made a huge mistake, turned the TV on, watched the preacher, and was mad in like seven minutes. <laughs> and my wife come back in afterwards and goes, well, the Lord taught you a lesson today. It's called don't watch preachers on Sunday morning before you go to church. And I went, yes, I'm still learning. Uh, so some things you see close your ears to. <laughs> I'm not even going to tell you why I was mad. But, or why I was upset. It was not worth it, but um, that's on me. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today. What an enormous honor you have bestowed upon me to stand in front of this people at Tabernacle of Hope and talk about Jesus. Thank you, Father. I hope I've done it justice. I hope I've done it in a way that brings glory to Jesus and honor to the Father, that takes the spotlight off of talent, works, and gifts, and self, and performance, and puts it on Jesus. Father, my take on what that Ark of the Covenant isn't the last take, but it's the take I feel like you showed me. Maybe it's just because that's what I, how I need to be able to process how liberated you've made me. Father, for whatever reason, I pray that where it should land in the hearts of the people, both here and that watch and listen around the world, it will land.
And where it doesn't need to, may it get choked out and not take root. Where it does land, Father, I pray that it ripens and grows as fruit and that you do what you do so well. We thank you for this weekend, for what you've done. We thank you this weekend for the seed that's been planted and we don't even see what you've done. There's been a birthing that's started and it may be a long gestation period, but I celebrate it. And I ask for good midwives along the way to coach us along in our journey. In Jesus' name, amen.